This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. It can sometimes seem like the only thing voters are thinking and talking about is the wide partisan divide. But that's not what we found when we hit the road recently to talk to Coloradans about the upcoming election. CPR reporters spread out across the state. John Daly traveled along I-70. Grace Hood visited the mountains and northern plains. Benta Birkeland spent time in Metro Denver and the northern Front Range. And I traveled east to west across southern Colorado. Along the way, we asked people what they think are the big issues facing the state. One thing we all discovered, Colorado's booming economy with an unemployment rate of under 3 percent has its pluses and minuses. And John, your route along I-70 took you through the metro area. What did people say about the economy? Well, yeah, that's right, Andrea. I was in areas that are doing well, as in Jeffco, uh, perhaps much better than elsewhere in the state. So mostly around the Denver metro area for part of that I-70 trip. And I heard a lot of things like, uh, yeah, things are great, but... And then people went into their fears about growth and housing and the struggles with traffic getting worse. And I heard folks wondering why, if Colorado is doing so well economically, the state can't afford anything. Some people I talked to wondered why there was not more state money going to education and schools or roads. And Benta, I know you're also in the metro area. What did you hear? I heard a lot of concerns about housing costs from people across the spectrum, this feeling that there's these new expensive condos being built everywhere and people worry that they could be displaced. They do think it's better to have a state that's growing compared to the opposite, but just have a lot of uncertainty about the future. Christelle Hawkes lives in Denver. It is so completely impossible to, to get into the market if you're a regular person. And they continually make these incredibly useless luxury apartments and luxury buildings. And they always use this marketing term to make things that people don't need, people can't afford. According to figures from the Federal Reserve, this influx is mostly educated young people. In fact, almost 80% of the net migration to the state, they're people under the age of 35. But I think some people might be surprised to know that half of the state's newest residents, they earn less than $25,000 a year. And the Fed report says that that could be just because they are new residents and also starting their careers because they're younger. Grace, you and I were both in rural areas, and the story's pretty different there. When I talked with people in the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, a lot of folks said they know the state's doing great, but they're just not feeling it. Absolutely. I think I fe felt a very strong sense of being left behind, wondering uh, why are our roads crumbling? Why are our bridges in disrepair? And, you know, I, th I think it's really worth noting that all those people that have moved to the state, they have gone to the metro area. They haven't moved to places like Sedgwick County, which is where I visited along the Nebraska border. Uh, you know, their countywide population has decreased 30 percent over the last 50 years. And, you know, just to give you a sense of how fragile the economy there is, one to two businesses uh, had left over the last couple of years, loss of 30 jobs. And it was really devastating there. So, um, you know, I think one of the things I noticed when I was out there is, uh, there's going to be a sales tax increase. And that the big hope there was that that would kind of get them into a better holding pattern and bolster their coffers. But, you know, really the long-term effort and game there is to attract new people, but it's really a hard sell. 
So rural areas seem to be missing out on the boom, but they also don't want to lose their way of life. I talked to one man in Sawatch who really captured this. He said Sawatch County has a lot of public land, and county leaders are pushing for things like tourism to boost the economy. When we talk about economic prosperity, probably the only thing we agree on is that we're okay with people coming, leaving some money, and then going away. Did any of you hear people say this, that they're worried their rural way of life is threatened? Well, yeah, you know, uh, Andrea, I visited Strasburg on the Eastern Plains, about 30 miles east of DIA. And there you got a sense of frustration about the expanding metro area making its way out east from Aurora and the booming area around the airport. Some old timers I talked to, they, they talked a lot about how crowded Denver has now become and they're seeing more development, more housing pop up, more traffic. And at the same time, people have moved there to try to get away from the city, and now it's in danger as the state continues its rapid growth of becoming an extension of the city. Yeah, and I mean, back to Sedgwick County near the Nebraska border, I think the concern was really flipped. The worries that I heard is whether they can just continue as, uh, you know, a small little town. I mean, if people are leaving and the tax base dries up, um, they're really going to be in trouble if they continue on their current trajectory. Uh, Chad Hushauer, he's the mayor of Julesburg in that county that I visited. He's also a school teacher. And he says, you know, he watches kids grow up, they graduate. And even if they want to come home, they just really can't because there's not a lot of jobs. Boy, it's tough, you know, anymore to to be to come back and run that family farm or even if there is a family farm. Those kids that they want to come back, well, what are they going to do? Yeah. And okay. the other thing I have to point out is everyone in Julesburg, this small town, had like two, three, four or five, six jobs, uh, including Hushauer. And so I really get why people who grew up in that small town don't want to move back because maybe they don't want to work six jobs to make ends meet. And, you know, there's something to be said on the front range for just going to work and going home and, you know, working your one job and turn on the TV (laughs) at the end of the day. Or radio. What What about concerns that so many people are coming to Colorado from other states? You know, just the idea of, you know, we've got people coming here from so many different cultures. And how are we all going to kind of come come together and have that sense of shared identity? Anthony Anthony Pagliaro came here from Washington, D.C. about five years ago. He's an unaffiliated voter. He's 30. And he just he really wants influx of new residents to meld with longtime Coloradans. And he worries if that doesn't happen the sense of identity could get a little bit lost. It's so funny. I always think of Colorado as one of those states that has a pretty strong identity compared to others. And, you know, he actually did consider that with outdoor recreation and this maybe more laid back type of lifestyle, not quite as big an urban area as you're going to find on the East Coast. Maybe they moved to this area for the same reason. And maybe they sort of have a similar mindset that brought them here that will sort of bring communities together that don't, like, clash with the, the natives. Grace, I know you went out with an ear for what people in the mountains and on the western slope are saying about public lands. What did you hear? Oh, huge deal out there. Very much on people's minds. Um, you know, really the stretch that I took along Highway 40, it went through the Colorado River headwaters, saw a ton of BLM land, especially near the Utah border. Um, you know, probably the most memorable experience I had was in Steamboat Springs. Um, you know, that I visited that town right around the same time that Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke was in town. And 
there was a little event. It was sort of a counter protest to Mr. Zinke's visit. And the reaction there was very emotional. Um, I think folks are just very concerned about public lands issues. And a lot of those issues were outside of Colorado. I'm thinking like the shrinking of Bears Ears National Monument. Yeah, you know, I heard similar things, too, in Grand Junction and elsewhere, especially younger people worried about losing access to public lands. And one thing that stood out to me on the Western Slope, and this was a few weeks ago before campaign season really heated up, And the one initiative people seemed really aware of was Prop 112. Now, that's the measure to increase setbacks around oil and gas wells, which would arguably put a lot of non-federal land in Colorado off limits to development. Were the folks you talked to pro or con? You know, I heard both sides. In many cases, you know, people were expressing it vehemently. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard, uh, I feel like having covered this as the Energy and Environment Report, I've heard a lot of different arguments. One of the most unique vantage points I heard during my road trip was in Moffat County. It's predominantly Republican, uh, mostly known for coal. Uh, you know, in that county is not really a top three or five uh, oil producer in the state. But local leaders there were thinking that they wanted to get more oil companies to set up shop. And they're very much worried that Proposition 112 would throw cold water on all of that. Mm. Um, for example, take a listen to Jeff Comstack. He's the National Re- uh, Natural Resources Director for the county. You're taking their asset. Just like you own a house on the surface, somebody else owns that mineral resource under the surface. That's an asset that is being taken away from somebody. And one of the things I find so fascinating about that is that most times now you're hearing uh, anti-Proposition 112 arguments from Greeley, Weld County. That's really the epicenter of the oil and gas development in the state. And you're not thinking as much about lesser counties that, you know, hey, maybe they want to attract more oil and gas development. Well, down in the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, one resource I heard a lot about is water. There's real fear about having enough water after this incredibly dry year. And there's frustration that people in Colorado's bigger cities just don't understand how critical it is. That's so true. I mean, the majority of the state was in drought this summer. I definitely heard this on the eastern plains. One farmer that I spoke with, Mark Arnish, he farms just outside of Keensburg. And, you know, he talked about his voting around the midterms and factoring in this thing called the Windy Gap Water Storage Project. And that's decades away from being built. But yet it's driving kind of his idea identity as an independent voter. I uh, also hear, heard it from the local leader of a chapter of Trout Unlimited that was in the mountains and concerned about the Colorado River. This gentleman I talked to uh, fishes on a tributary of that. Yeah. And in the San Luis Valley, um, I was surprised to hear that concerns about water went far beyond people with direct connections to agriculture. I talked to a doctor in Alamosa and a dentist there who brought up water. And Benta, did you um, find this come up on the front, front range? Or? It really didn't come up. Uh, it kind of speaks to what you guys were hearing, diff- different areas of concern depending upon the part of the state you're in. Um, it doesn't seem to be top of mind for the urban front range voters. They were concerned about natural resources, but not specifically water. Talk about some other things that came up. As we already mentioned, growth, affordability, having enough infrastructure for for new people coming here and those who already live here, that's huge. Some people mentioned more money for schools and education. One thing that did stick out to me, 
as I was hearing, um, a little bit of a generation gap in terms of what comes to top of mind. I was at Colorado State University and talked to younger voters, and I heard a lot about gun control and feeling that there should be more restrictions on gun purchases and Mm. concerns about school shootings and what they're hearing around the country. And these are folks who aren't really that far away from high school and those lockdown drills, so really being personally impacted by that issue. Heard concerns about climate change and especially younger voters when it comes to public lands, they're concerned and they really want to keep this type of recreation available to them and this lifestyle that they value. I actually spoke with a lot of older folks who are really concerned about the rising cost of living. They talked about what it's like to live on a fixed income. I met a man named Friend Dar at a farmer's market in Alamosa, and Dar's retired but supplements his income by selling the vegetables he grows. I've adjusted to the downscale of uh, the pay. <laughs> but I know a lot of people that have that have a hard time. They're not, for whatever reason able to subsidize their their uh, retirement you know from infirmities health you know whatever and and those are the people we need to be looking out for you know and on the official level i spoke with an alamosa county commissioner who's really concerned about the shortage of housing for people as they age that's a real worry in this particular area because there's so much generational poverty. You should tell those people that you talked to, Andrea, to move to Julesburg. I'm sure that that town that I visit on the Nebraska border, they'd love to have people live there for their golden years, solve their population problems. Yeah. And along with aging, it seems natural to ask what you heard about health care in general. Absolutely. I cross paths with Longmont voter Mike Buffington. I met him at a Corvette meetup in August. It's not typically my jam, but it was really interesting to talk to him. He's retired. He's on Medicare, uh, not really happy with Trump's effort to repeal the Affordable Health Care Act. And uh, of course, that did not succeed. But he wants to see health care become even more accessible. He really uh, was basing that comment on experiences with family members. And his sister was recently diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Especially as you get older, I know more and more friends seem to go. (laughs) But uh, it's very important, I think, to have good health care when you're younger, too. And Buffington there is referencing his granddaughter, who has to buy her own health insurance. Well, thanks to all of you for joining us. We've been talking about CPR's road trip to November. CPR reporters talked to voters across the state. Reporter John Daly traveled along I-70, bent to Brooklyn, spent time in Metro Denver, and Grace Hood visited the Northern Plains and Mountains. You can find a visual travelogue of all our journeys at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. And I'm Ryan Warner. An explosion in Iraq changed Steve Baskis's life. In 2008, he was in the Army guarding a general. I thought there was merit and uh, meaning in protecting someone or protecting life. That's the kind of guy Steve is. He was in a convoy in Baghdad when a roadside bomb went off. It killed a good friend of mine. He was like a father to me. Uh, my team came to my rescue pulled me from the vehicle. Really, the important thing is, is they saved my life. And and, and I'm here today because of that. After the explosion, Baskis was in and out of consciousness and remembers waking up with patches on his eyes. Laying in the hospital bed and touching my eyes and trying to imagine 
what happened and, and where I was. He was halfway around the world in Washington, D.C. at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And he was now blind. For me, I stare into darkness, into a still world. And that can be very suffocating. And I'm just left with thinking. Because visually, I'm not distracted. So I'm stuck in my mind constantly. What gets him out of his head is movement. And he often finds that movement on Colorado's rivers. And I like to say that moving is living. And so when I get out on water, it's very dynamic, it's very flowing, it's alive underneath you. And to be able to come and kayak through whitewater uh, with a guide and navigate through six features, which I think this whitewater park has, you don't feel as disabled. Steve Baskus and I are sitting on a park bench next to the Uncompagre River in Montrose on the western slope. Baskus first came to town as a visitor to kayak with a veterans group. Now he's moving here which is exactly what folks in town want. In the last six years, Montrose has tried to reshape itself as a destination for vets, a place that will ease their transition to civilian life. This effort is called the Welcome Home Alliance for Veterans. And at the heart of it, not far from the river, is the Warrior Resource Center. We have uh, display cases of different memorabilia, that a lot of our veterans have brought in that is meaningful for them. Executive Director Mike Tricky and I take a look around one of the main gathering spaces. There's a big round table in the middle. I'm seeing hats that were part of military uniforms. Yes. There's a scale model of... That is the USS Montrose. The USS Montrose. That's correct. Well, that's a nice name. We like it. We yep. like it. I can see... Uh, I see a lot of uh, flags in those triangle cases. I remember receiving one of those when my grandfather in the Air Force passed away. Yeah, and those are uh, flags representing some of our veterans that uh, have passed away since we've been here. And what is this place? What, is it, what does it do? It heals. It affords veterans opportunity to uh, just be themselves, to engage in conversations with each other, to share their stories. War stories? War stories, stories of, of how they struggled to get back into society, all their successes. But it's an opportunity to do that in such a way that they feel safe, they feel comfortable. They're not judged. Are you a veteran? Yes, I am. I spent four years in Marine Corps, 68 to 72. And, uh... You're tearing up. I wonder why... I feel very fortunate uh, to be in this position right now to where I can listen to and relate a lot of the experiences that veterans have. When I see men and women here in the center talking about their experiences and, and seeing the camaraderie that is created, you just can't help but to be moved by that. It seems that fundamental to this is the idea of veterans being with other veterans. It's so helpful to have someone who gets it. Exactly. Especially the combat veterans. Um, they have a very unique way of communicating with each other. What do you mean? It's almost surreal sometimes to see grown men get emotional and the similarities of their experiences. And that and, may be across generations, is my understanding. So it might yes. be someone who is in Operation Iraqi Freedom relating mm -hmm. to a Vietnam veteran. And a Korean veteran. 
relating to a Gulf War veteran. I wondered, haven't VFWs and American legions been doing this work for a long time? Yes, Tricky tells me, but this is a community-wide effort. The Alliance lobbied the VA to get more housing for veterans in Montrose. It became a clearinghouse for services and opened this safe place for veterans to gather. It also got local businesses to offer veterans discounts. Shopkeepers put a little sticker in their window. Thousands of vets live in this county, and if they need anything, chances are they'll find it at the Warrior Resource Center, because people constantly donate things. Good electric wheelchairs, lifts for those chairs, carriers for those chairs, canes, walkers, transfer boards, uh, back braces. This is John Davis. He served in Vietnam and volunteers at the center. Unlike Steve Baskus, the blind veteran we met earlier, Davis has been in Montrose a long time. And he says he noticed a shift when Montrose decided to lay out the welcome mat. A man, his wife, and two little girls came over and they said, uh, thank you for your service. And that was the first time anybody had ever said that to me. And that was a little over three years ago. That's probably happened to me at least two dozen times since or more. I don't know. You can't keep track, you know, but... And you came from a war that... A lot of people were hesitant to say that about to veterans. I mean, veterans came back from Vietnam, and they were treated like like dirt in many cases. That's right. Davis's own story of service is unforgettable. His job in Vietnam was to sweep for landmines with a bulldozer. With a big old blade, reinforced belly pans, a cover. And uh, what we did is we started at daylight in the morning, got in a row, there were 32 and we'd clear 15, 1,600 acres a day in a level. I can't imagine what that job must have been day in and day out. In other words, you were hypervigilant. You were on edge. I'm assuming. I don't want to put words in your mouth. That's but right. if I were in that job, every second of every day, I would have been thinking, is this my last second? Mm-hmm. Is that an accurate description? Yes. And it gets to the point where you don't care. You got a job to do. That's what you do. Keep your guys alive. How did that affect you in the, in the decades afterwards, that for a year of your life, you were in that sort of headspace? Why well, how do I answer that? Um, well, I'm emotional right now, you know, and I'm back there today. In your head? Yeah. And uh, when you come in here, you meet a new vet, doesn't matter where he's been, you know, and you say certain words in that discussion then you're connected. It's that terrible vocabulary of war. Yeah, that's a good description. Davis says the highlight of his week is a Thursday morning meeting of vets, which he jokes is a dangerous place to be. Because the Marines run it, and the Army's accepted, but you wouldn't believe what happens here on this table on Thursdays. Give me a whiff. I can't. It's (laughs) X-rated. I think fundamentally you're talking about camaraderie. Uh, Yeah, that's a better word. (laughs) Now, maybe you're wondering, why did Montrose do all this, position itself as a mecca for veterans? Part of it was economic, says journalist Donna Bryson. She heard about what was happening here and wrote a book about it called Home of the Brave. She says, go back to the Great Recession when unemployment in Montrose County was near 13 percent. Montrose was 
was really hit hard by the Great Recession and didn't bounce back as fast as other parts of, well, as fast as the Front Range. And they'd been talking about these issues. How do we revitalize our town? How do you bring new life into it? And they'd been talking about it a lot (laughs) without really coming to any conclusions. They knew Montrose was pretty far from the interstate. That's a disadvantage for attracting manufacturing. They thought maybe they'd capitalize on Montrose's most famous son, the screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, except his family left when he was three. But one day in 2011, a local business owner, a jeweler named Melanie Klein, was watching the news. The fateful Sunday morning. (laughs) I was just having a cup of coffee. My husband was still sleeping. I was sitting on the couch and I was watching CBS Sunday morning. And they had this piece that really caught my attention and moved me like nothing ever has. On the Potomac River, just outside Washington, D.C., two kayakers were in search of the adrenaline rush that comes from surfing a whitewater wave. (laughs) You might not have guessed that 21-year-old Todd Love in the front seat was a triple amputee. Love, a U.S. Marine... The story was about teaching wounded and disabled veterans to paddle. Klein thought Montrose has a river. In fact, we're close to a lot of outdoor activities. We have veterans. Maybe we could attract more. And maybe they'd even start businesses. What would happen if a whole community came together on behalf of these injured vets, who there's no shortage of and the war's not over yet? We can't wait for the VA because that's not their job, to integrate warriors back to civilian life. It has to be the community that does that. It has to be a grassroots community effort. And could my community do that? I think it could. So I just sort of went nuts from that minute, stood up, woke up my husband, said, I think I just had the biggest idea of my life. Do you think I'm nuts? And do you think a community could come together? All the nonprofit organizations in the churches and the public and the private and the and rise above their agendas to include welcoming veterans and providing opportunity for the community to help them become successful citizens. Well, today, the unemployment rate in Montrose County is 3.4 percent, and it has landed a new headquarters, a fly-fishing tackle manufacturer called Mayfly Outdoors. Now, you can't say that Welcome Home Alliance for Veterans, which Melanie Klein founded, is responsible for that. There are much broader economic factors. But this much is clear. The effort got people here on the same page. It gave Montrose an identity beyond struggling town. And it helped spur city leaders to invest in the riverfront, turning this stretch of the Uncompagre into a water park, one that's accessible to kayakers with disabilities, like Steve Baskus the blind former army security specialist who's now making Montrose his home. It's a playground. Within three hours, you can be down in the desert, in Moab, in red sandstone, uh, a slick rock, or you can be up in the San Juans, 14,000-foot peaks, and everything in between. And I chose here because of my love of the outdoors, but also the people. The people who jump in a kayak with him, who ski with him, hike with him, and make him feel at home. I like to say people quite literally guide me through life. So it's really, it's a great thing. And he hopes other veterans will follow him to Montrose. That's CPR's Ryan Warner. His story originally aired in July. I'm Andrew Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.